Welcome to episode five of the Worthwhile Podcast, a Christ-centered podcast to provide encouragement, practical guidance, and spiritual perspective to your ministry, leadership, and life. Each week, I'll talk about important applications for personal development, healthy relationships, entrepreneurship, ministry tools, and ultimately leading a worthwhile life. Because nothing worthwhile is ever easy, but finding a great podcast about it should be. Hi, I'm Pastor John. Thank you for tuning in to the Worthwhile Podcast. We believe that you are worthwhile and that your life matters. And that's what this podcast is all about. We promise to keep this podcast commercial-free and 100% listener-supported. So if you'd like to join our partners, please visit patreon.com slash theworthwhilepodcast. And join us at any level that feels right to you. You'll get a personal thank you from me, Pastor John, and you'll win some nice gifts and cool swag along the way. Again, visit patreon.com slash theworthwhilepodcast. And thanks in advance. Hey, if you missed last week's episode, please go back and check it out. I had the privilege of a great conversation with my wife, Tiffany Markham, on the subject of having a worthwhile marriage. It was a great episode, and for me, it was just an absolute joy to get to share a microphone with her and talk about what we've been able to uh, have great conversations on with many couples who are thinking about getting married, working on getting married, or working on their marriage. I would love for you to go back and check it out. Uh, I've got future interviews coming soon, and I know that the guests that we bring to the show will be a great blessing to you in adding insight and guidance toward your worthwhile life. Uh, Today I've got a favor to ask. Uh, I would love it if you did this for me. Please take a minute, take about 30 seconds to 60 seconds, and uh, go to wherever you listen to this podcast, preferably on iTunes, and give the Worthwhile Podcast a quick review. Give us a rating, give us a review. It would really mean a lot to us if you did that to help get the word out and help more people see this podcast as they search for meaningful content through whatever stream they listen to podcasts on. It would be a huge favor, and I'd really appreciate it. Also, if you do that and you happen to be one of our patrons, and I see that you gave a review, I'll enter you into a drawing for a book I'm currently reading that I know you're going to enjoy. So take a whole 30 seconds, 60 seconds, a minute tops, and drop that review. It would really mean a lot to me, and if you are one of our patrons, I will also drop you in for a drawing for a new book that I think you're going to love. So there's that. I really appreciate it. Today, however, is our fifth episode, and we're talking about what Christianity can't do. There are some limitations to our faith, and obviously uh, today's episode is kind of geared more towards people who would identify themselves as followers of Jesus, as Christians. And so I just want to say if that's not you, and you've been gracious and listening to our podcast up to this point, participating, uh, I don't want you to feel left out. I, I hope that through this episode you kind of see my heart and attitude towards people of our faith and the standard that I want to hold all of us accountable to. So please don't tune out. Please listen in and know that I'm not singling you out or picking on you. I'm calling those of us who identify as Christians uh, into further commitment into our faith and to better practice of our faith. So please just kind of take that into your perspective as you listen to today's episode. And I'm going to treat this subject today as somewhat of a um, as an inductive talk. In other words, I'm going to kind of give you the main point right up front instead of at the end as a big hook or conclusion. Uh, I'm going to give it to you right up front and then kind of explain it as I go. The one thing Christianity can't do, and there's probably other things it can't do, but the one thing in particular I want to talk about today is it cannot coerce others. Christianity cannot and should not coerce others. Another way of saying that would be that Christianity cannot make other people do what Christianity says people should do. It cannot make other people do what it teaches people 
should do. Now, make no mistake, Christianity has some strong beliefs and it believes that people should um, adopt these beliefs and live these beliefs and model these beliefs. Um, but it is also equally adamant that it cannot coerce these beliefs. In fact, I'd go so far enough to say that Christianity that tries to coerce others fails at being Christian altogether. So maybe you're listening and you are a Christian and you're like, John, I don't get it. What are you talking about? Give me some examples. Okay, great. So for example, Christians cannot force their beliefs on others. We would probably all agree with that, but then we might disagree on the application of that thought. So let's give some more examples. Um, we, Christians, cannot legislate righteousness. We cannot legislate righteousness. We cannot make others become or behave like Christians, especially those who do not consider themselves to be Christians. That is really, really important. And what I'm really hoping to accomplish today is to help shape your perspective on what we as Christians do and how we relate to those who don't share our beliefs. And I want to make an impact in the way you think about this on an individual level, but also how we collectively relate to this on a national level and even a global level, because this is really really important and it doesn't get talked about very often in churches or Christianity as a whole and I want to speak into that today. So Christianity cannot coerce others to act or behave like Christians. Uh, why not? Well there's a couple of reasons why. The number one reason I would give is that it always backfires. When Christianity tries to coerce others it always backfires. Do I have an example of that? Yeah I've got one glaring example. Constantine. Uh, Emperor Constantine, Caesar Constantine, uh, was uh, arguably one of the last Roman uh, emperors, last Roman Caesars before the kingdom became divided into an East and West Roman Empire. Uh, Constantine was also the first Caesar to publicly profess Christianity. And there's a whole backstory about how he became a Christian. It's all very fascinating, by the way, and I suggest that maybe you look into it. Uh, but here's kind of the thing I want you to understand. In 313, Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire. Up to that point, Christianity uh, was not tolerated, Christianity was attacked, and Christianity was marginalized and persecuted on a, I would say a worldwide scale, but on a, a Roman Empire scale. By 325, the Council of Nicene was formed, which we would all say was a good thing. Overall, the Council of Nicene brought church leaders together to kind of fundamentally articulate what our core beliefs are. It's the first real, uh, I, mean, I think the Apostles' Creed might predate the Nicene Creed, but my, my point is it was one of the earliest expressions of doctrinal truth about Christianity. By 380 AD, however, within a lifetime Christianity wasn't just tolerated, there wasn't just uh, important councils being made to help further the cause of Christianity, it became the national religion. And when it became the national religion and coercion of Christianity became a thing, it began to really unravel. I would go so far as to say I'm not dissing on any of my Catholic friends, uh, but if, but if uh, you're Catholic, please forgive me for anything that may be taken as offensive. But what happened from this point forward, from 380 AD forward with Christianity, began to be more of a human empire than a kingdom of God. By 1095, the first crusades began. And if you want to talk about coercion as uh, just a legal preference of pushing an agenda, uh, the crusades went to a whole other level by actually 
forcing people, you know, not just coercing in a pressure kind of way, but actually forcing people to think and believe in Christianity. And obviously the uh, Crusades particularly were um, bent around reclaiming Jerusalem and declaring it a Christian city. Um, the Spanish Inquisitions came a few centuries later. And you begin to see more and more of a um, forcing people to think and believe in certain ways. And I will say this, that I see the earmarks of this kind of thinking taking place in America today. I'm not singling out any parties, I'm not going to mention any of the parties by name, but there is a temptation to try to legislate Christianity to coerce people to think, believe, or do what we want them to do based off of our spiritual values. And that is not how Christianity works. So why can we not coerce people? Because one, it always backfires. Number two, people naturally resist whatever is regulated. Your knee-jerk reaction when you're told you have to do something tends to be, why? Why do I have to do that? And I would say that Christianity does not benefit from that kind of coercion. Thirdly, I would say that it, it creates counterfeits, that when we coerce our faith, when our faith is, is asserted upon people, that it creates counterfeits. And we are a faith that seeks sincerity. Uh, David, after he got caught in his sin, he talked in the Bible, he talked about how God desires truth in the inward parts. How, how God doesn't just want outward compliance, he wants inward obedience. And coerced Christianity does not create inward obedience. It may create outward compliance to an extent, but it always ends up backfiring and creating counterfeits. And we don't seek counterfeits. We seek sincerity. We seek authenticity of ourselves and those who profess to be Jesus followers also. Uh, closely associated with that, number four, it encourages massive hypocrisy. When, when Christianity becomes a, a means of coercing people to think like we think and do what we do and believe like we believe, it inevitably leads to massive hypocrisy. Why? Because it becomes a matter of creating power rather than pursuing faith. It becomes a matter of creating power or maintaining power, as the case may be, rather than by pursuing faith. And last of all, why this is a bad idea, why course of Christianity is a bad idea, is that it is contrary to the ways of Jesus and the early church. It is contrary to the ways of Jesus and the early church. Let me share a few scriptures with you to kind of help make that point stick. In Matthew 11, 28 and 30, one of my favorite passages of scripture of Jesus speaking to us, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you notice the tone of what Jesus is saying here? It is not coercive, it is invitational. He is inviting. He is inviting us to come to him, and as a result of coming to him and learning from him, for he is gentle and humble in heart, we find rest. What else does Jesus say about this? In John 6, verses 66 and 67, uh, he had just been teaching in some tough truths to a large crowd. And as he taught these tough truths, many people said, this is a hard saying, and they went away. And listen to what happens in verses 66 and 67. It says, as a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. You'd think that this would become a time when Jesus would really put his foot down and say, hey, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to follow me, and this is what you have to do. And... This is actually why people were walking away, because he was telling them what it meant to be his disciple. But he did not stop them from walking away. And listen to what happens. And these people walk away, and so he turns to his 12 disciples and says, You do not want to go away also, do you? And Peter famously responds to this, Where shall we go? You have the words of life. 
But the point is, is that Jesus invites people to follow him. He doesn't stop them from leaving him. And he even turned to his own disciples and said, what will you choose? Do you choose to follow me also? Or, or are you going to walk away like those who have? And Peter came to the conclusion like, no, you are worth it. You have the words of life and you are everything that we need. We're going to follow you. What else does the Bible say? Jesus says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. What is all of this based on? Hearing and believing the words of Jesus, not by force, not by coercion, not by legislation, but by faith. The just shall live by faith, it says elsewhere in the scriptures. What else does the Bible say about this? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 10, 13, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is a matter of faith. It is a matter of volition. It is a matter of choice. Acts 26, 28, later on the Apostle Paul is being persecuted for his faith. He's being persecuted for preaching the name of Jesus and inviting others, just like Jesus talked about, inviting others to find and follow Jesus. And he gets arrested, he's in chains, and he stands before King Agrippa, who was the last of the Herods to rule over parts of, uh, of the Jewish nation under the authority of the Roman Empire. He was uh, more of a client of the Roman Empire rather than an independent sovereign king. He would have been under Caesar. But Agrippa, after, after listening to Paul's entire story of faith of how he came to Christ, the, the, the man King Agrippa replied to Paul in uh, Acts 26 verse 28, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian also. And Paul says, I wish to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you but also all those who hear me today would become as he was, become a Christian. And so it tells me that this faith in Christ is not a matter of coercion, of forcing or manipulating people to become Christians or behave like Christians, but that they must be invited and welcomed into the family of God. It is not something that we can force or coerce. So what does this mean for us? What do we do with this as Christians? Uh, well, one, it means that we participate in politics. I'm not saying don't, don't go out and vote. We should participate in politics without losing our primary purpose. And our primary purpose is that we are citizens, not of a nation, but of a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And we should never sacrifice our allegiance to the kingdom for blind following of our politics to a man-made nation. Number two, it means that we keep our hope in Jesus' work to change lives, starting with our own. We cannot coerce people. We have to allow God's word and the spirit of God to do the change in people's lives, and that includes in our own life. I would argue that even ourselves, that we have never even changed ourselves truly, that it is only the work of God changing our hearts to be more like Jesus in everything we think, do, and say as well. I would say, secondly, that we must abandon all attempts at legislating our values. And, and I hate to say that because I know how important it is for many Christians to see our values be recognized on a national scale, but our faith is not one that can be coerced. Are there exceptions to that? Sure, I would say there are exceptions when it comes to uh, protecting people who are vulnerable. That is a time where our values should be asserted to protect the innocent, whether that's unborn children or people of a racial diversity who are being marginalized. Our faith must interject and protect those who are vulnerable. And lastly, I would say that we have to model authenticity that encourages authenticity. 
I mentioned earlier that not only is a coercive version of Christianity contrary to the teachings of Jesus, but it's also contrary to the behavior of the early church, the people who were closest to the time that we received these teachings of Jesus. You notice that they never tried to change the Roman Empire. From all that we can tell in history, there was no attempts of them campaigning against uh, the Caesars or, or trying to throw a coup or vote someone out of office, that there was more of an attempt to focus on living out the teachings of Jesus individually. And that was such a compelling, irresistible kind of faith that other people learned it and wanted to be a part of it, even though it was under oppression, persecution, and marginalization. What would happen if we had that kind of faith today? One that was uh, concerned about the values of our culture, but instead of trying to change them politically, worked on modeling them spiritually and in community in a way where it was compelling and irresistible for those who saw it from the outside, and they wanted to be a part of it from the inside out. Let's just give some examples. What do you think would be better? I mentioned unborn babies. What would be better if we outlawed abortion, or if our faith was so compelling that people didn't want to get them anymore? Don't get me wrong, I'm pro-life. I want to see unborn babies protected and given the same dignity and the same rights as those who are born. But what is more helpful? Passing a law that makes it illegal to get them, and people do get them still because they go around the system to find other ways, they travel to other countries where it's not illegal? Or creating a culture that invites people who may have had an abortion and lets them know that they still matter to God, they are still loved, they still have value as a person too, that they're not a throwaway either. And that there is grace and there's mercy and there's forgiveness and welcoming them and giving them tools and helping them through a difficult decision that they just made. I find that that kind of a faith is more compelling and leads people to wanting to be a part of that kind of community. Not because we changed our values, but because we changed how we lived them out. I can make the same argument for every other kind of sin or lifestyle that is contrary to our Christian values. When we model what we believe and we show grace and compassion in a way that is loving and irresistible and compelling, more people feel invited in as opposed to told what they can and can't do. That is a faith I want to be a part of. That is a version of Christianity that I want to model in my life and that I want to see modeled in other Christians' lives as well. So what do we do? We humbly compel people, not coerce, there's a difference. We compel, we model in a way that is irresistible for people with the truth and our examples. We do not coerce them through force or even through legislation or the tools of government. God seeks truth in the inward parts and you can't get that by forcing it. There's a story of a mom who was in church with uh, her seven-year-old son and uh, they were in service together and every couple of minutes the son just would stand up in the pew or, or seat where he was sitting, and the mom would get upset at him because he was being disrespectful and disruptive in church, and so she said, son, you need to sit down. And so he'd sit down, and he stood up again, and she goes, what are you doing? I told you to sit down. Sit down. And finally, a few minutes later, he stood up again, and she gets in closer, only her and the kid can hear, and she says, I told you three times now to sit down and stay sitting down. If you get up again, there's going to be consequences when we get home. And the boy looks back at his mom, and he says, I'm sitting down on the, in on the outside, but on the inside, I'm still standing up. And it's kind of a funny preacher story, I know, but the point of it still remains. Outward compliance is not the same thing as inward obedience. And we don't simply want people to have outward compliance and go through the motions and the behaviors of church and of Christianity. We want them to truly live it out for themselves and experience life, life more abundantly in Jesus Christ. We can't make people follow Jesus. We can only invite them and teach them how. 
So, whether you're listening to this today and you're a Christian or not, I want you to understand that Jesus is not a coercive, forceful Messiah. He's not a forceful Savior. He is a God of grace. He is a God of invitation. He calls us to himself. Some of the last verses in Scripture are in Revelation uh, chapter 22, verses 17 uh, and on. And the thing that's so interesting about that is that after it tells us what's happening towards the end times, there's a lot of different debate and argument we can have about what the end of the world looks like according to the Bible. And I don't intend to get into all that today, but what I want to get into is this last couple of phrases that we see in the last couple of verses of the entire Bible. And as John, the writer of the book of Revelation, who's writing all these prophetic things down, these visions that he's received from God down, he, he writes this, and this is not coming from him, this is coming from God. He says, the Spirit, as in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit and the Bride, that's the church, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. It is an invitation. It is a compelling invitation, but it is not a coercive mandate. God is inviting us. He is calling us. He is welcoming us. He is urging us to come to him, to experience life, life more abundantly, to submit ourselves to the ways of Jesus and his teachings. But he is not a forceful God. He is a loving God who is inviting us to come be a part of what he is created for us. And we must have the same inviting in spirit towards others as well. Our faith cannot be coerced. It always backfires when it is attempted to do so. It creates massive amounts of counterfeit and hypocrisy. Uh, people are naturally resistant towards it, and it is contrary to the ways of Jesus and to the early church. So what do we do? We humbly lead others by the truth and our example. We do not coerce them with tools of man. We invite them with the tools of God. We pray for them and we model it ourselves. And I just want to ask uh, right now in this moment, as uh, I get ready to end this episode, like I do every episode, I, I choose to pray for you. And as I kind of pointed out at the beginning of this episode, um, you know, you, you may not be a spiritual person or not see yourself as a spiritual person at least. Uh, and maybe you do, but you don't see yourself as a Christian and that's okay. I invite you to take this prayer as good vibes if that's all it means to you. Just know that I care about you and this is part of what makes my life worthwhile and I want to extend that strength and that grace to you now. So let me pray for you. God, I pray right now for every man and woman listening to this podcast. I thank you, God, that they give me time to speak into their life every week. And God, I just pray right now that you would help us to once again, by our own choice, come to you and humble ourselves before the cross of Jesus. God, I pray for every Christian listening to this right now, that it would be a consistent daily exercise to spend time with you and to humble ourselves before you and to ask you, God, to fill us with your wisdom and your perspective on the lives of those around us so that we can truly model the ways of Jesus in a way that others see our good deeds and give you glory in heaven. God, I pray for uh, the men and women listening to this today who are uh, listening to this prayer even, who don't believe in you, who do not know you. God, I pray that through this podcast today that they would see just a little bit of not, not only my heart for them, God, but ultimately your heart for them, that you love them, that you sent your son to die on a cross for them so that you could have a relationship with them so that they could know you and spend an eternity in heaven with you, but experience your grace, your goodness, and your power here in this life also. Thank you, God, for this time I've got to spend with everybody today. Bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening today. Don't forget to drop a review, especially if you are listening to this via iTunes. 
Uh, it would really mean a lot to me to know that uh, you are getting something out of this podcast and that it is encouraging you. And it would also help us boost where we land on certain uh, categories and charts on iTunes so that other people are more likely to see this podcast and join us as well. Thank you again for tuning in. I look forward to joining back with you again next time for more of the Worthwhile Podcast. The Worthwhile Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Visit patreon.com slash theworthwhilepodcast to make your monthly pledge. My name is John Markham. Thanks for listening.